Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. All right. Good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. Good morning, Bruce. Good morning. This is Rachel Marshall and Bruce Weiner, and we are here to talk to you about another very important topic that's probably, if it's not top of mind to you, it's probably somewhere in the back of your mind. And so we are going to be talking today about inflation and more specifically, how inflation can be combated or overcome by infinite banking. I think that's probably something where you might be saying, hey, there's really high inflation. And how does that impact my financial life? But even more importantly, if I'm trying to stay ahead of inflation, will infinite banking solve those problems for me? So that's what we have on our um, radar and our conversation today. So before we get into the topic and before we share our thoughts and how we're going to break down the show, if inflation is a concern to you, please go ahead and and if you're watching live or afterwards, please go ahead and pop into the comment section wherever you're watching. Yes, inflation is a concern or specifically what your question about inflation is or about how inflation relates to infinite banking. So that is a question for you and we would love to hear your thoughts because the more we hear from you, the better we can deliver content that is most applicable to your specific thoughts. I was going to say concerns, but we don't always have concerns. Sometimes they're just thoughts. So um, now, Bruce, before I really unpack this, I just want to hear your thoughts on inflation, and then we're going to all break down how we're going to talk about the show and why we're discussing this. Yes. So uh, inflation is simply the increase of the money supply, and people argue about this all the time, but Milton Freeman said that only the government can increase the money supply. So the government is solely responsible for inflation. And there's a variety of reasons why they want inflation. Um, Inflation can actually cause wages to go up. And when wages go up, then um, people go up into a tax bracket and then they can actually collect more taxes. Um, Nice, right? Yeah, yeah. For the government. It also, yeah. It also, as you increase the money supply, the, the Federal Reserve is also making more money um, in that by charter. Uh, they can all, when they all increase the money supply, they can do a lot more government programs. Uh, but then the person, it's, what's interesting about this is, you know, our government is, especially certain factions of the government are trying to help people at the, what they would call the poorest level and redistribute the wealth. But inflation actually hurts the lowest level people uh, in, in the income brackets because uh, they, don't, they normally cannot invest in things that outpace inflation, whether it be a business, real estate, or other um, traditional investments, whether they be the stock market or private investments, so on and so forth. And so, you know, the, the Austrian economists are saying that we should not be manipulating the money supply because we should let the free, free market determine what the money supply is. But governments can't keep their hands off of that because they always think that the central 
the central government knows better than what the free market does. Um, but it's really damaging towards um, what I would call the everyday American. Now we can, we're going to talk about this. There's several ways to actually combat this. And we're going to go into that in, in a little bit of detail. Yes. Yeah, so I was really interested in this um, topic and specifically we had a very good listener question about this. So I'm going to read the whole question because it a shows that somebody's paying a lot of attention to the signs in the economy and watching what's happening. They're also thinking very critically about how to position themselves in a position of control. And they're, this is very wise for all of us to hear the full question because there's so much packed into this and we're going to break it down today and then really talk about infinite banking in relationship to inflation. And we've covered this a little bit in detail before, but more so as a portion of an episode rather than dedicating an entire episode to it. So first I want to thank Phil for the question and I'm going to read his question that we received in an email. And here's the question. Hello, Rachel. Thanks for the content. I'm on. I'm of the belief that inflation is not transitory. I'm 44 years old and remember when a candy bar was 50 cents. I think we can all relate to candy bars being far less than they are now. I'm a student of the Austrian School of Economics and only think that inflation will be exponentially worse as the U.S. monetary policy continues to stay the same, increasing the money supply as that is their only option unless politicians want to be responsible, which we know they won't be. That's a, being a realist here. A method that has worked in the inflationary environment since 1971 when gold was dropped completely is to borrow money and pay it back in cheaper dollars. Think 30-year mortgage on a house. Then he goes on to say, I love the thought of IBC in normal monetary times, but I just can't wrap my head around how a death benefit 30 years from now, ideally, will be worth much as prices continue to increase. And I think I would rather borrow from the bank and pay them back with cheap dollars instead of doing that disservice to myself. Again, he goes on, I just think that the dollar will only devalue more and more, and I'm not understanding how IBC has any defense against that. Everything else is great about it in my mind. So first, thank you, Phil, for such a well-thought-out question and not just posting a one-liner. That was a very, very well-thought-out well, um, intellectually reasoned, disciplined question. I can see that you are wanting to take control of your financial life. And so we thought this would be a fabulous question to be able to answer in a public forum, because this is probably on the top of many people's minds, not just yours. Yeah. And so there's, there's many conceptual things we can uh, unwrap here. Um, let's just, let's start with Nelson Nash also being an Austrian. He studied Austrian economics. He was actually, um, he actually received the war, uh, an award from FEE and- Which is the financial- uh, education, education of edu economics, I believe is what the, okay. that stands for. And um, so he was really into monetary uh, policy. And so I agree 100% with what Phil's saying about you know, a mortgage, and I, I actually used to quote this all the time, is a $1,000 mortgage payment today at normal, at normal 3% inflation would only have the buying power of $417 30 years from today. Bruce, so, that's, 
I did the same calculation, except I doubled to a $2,000 mortgage yeah. and mine, yeah, 30 years from now, 823. I think the, the math is exactly the same. It yeah. shrinks yeah. way less than half. Yes. And so when you start looking at it from your own personal view like that, you're like, that makes perfect sense. And I want to remind people that Nelson had five tenets of IBC. The first one was... Um, don't be afraid to capitalize. The second one was think long-term. The third one was, um, or is, I should say, don't steal the peas. In other words, pay back policy loans. The fourth one is what we're talking about today is don't do business with banks. And the fifth one is rethink your thinking. And the don't do business with banks is the one that, that Phil's talking about. And I want to remind listeners, Nelson didn't get the banks out of his life until he was age 67. So it's not, it's not like this is something that you have to think about immediately. But one of the reasons that Nelson says don't do business with banks is the same reason that the money supply is multiplied. So banks multiply the money supply by fractional reserve banking. So they only have to have 10% of money in the bank and they can loan out 90%. So they're actually increasing the money supply too. I agree 100% with Phil that the, the that inflation's not going to be transitory. Um, I don't think it's going to be as high as what it is now, um, whether it's the real inflation numbers or the numbers that the government puts out. Um, they will come down because they are doing things to make sure they come down. And one is raising interest rates. Now, ironically, because I shouldn't say, I don't think it's ironic. Interestingly enough, um, because uh, life insurance policies are interest rate driven, both with the guaranteed interest rate and the dividend being determined by mostly the portfolio return of bonds, both treasury and corporate bonds that are interest rate sensitive. So as you increase the interest to try to combat inflation, dividend, historically, dividend rates have gone up. So because interest rates is, go up, the bond rates go up, the the return on the portfolio the return on up. the portfolio goes up. So the dividend the dividend goes up because the portfolio return has gone up. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing that, and I'm not saying it's going to offset it completely. Um, nobody has a crystal ball as far as that goes. But the other interesting thing is if you start a policy now, and this happens in the next few years, you're actually going to have those that compounding on the dividends happen for the rest of the contract. And that is a real powerful thing to think about. So that is the first thing to think that the way that the infinite banking concept can uh, overcome. Now, he also made comments, I believe, about the death benefits in, yes, today's, in today's dollars and in, in, uh, in future dollars. I agree with that, too. I actually have this conversation with clients all the time. However, when you take into consideration that dividends in a, in a Nelson Nash specially designed life insurance uh, contract also buys more paid up additional insurance 
the illustrated death benefit will also be increasing more as dividend rates go up. Once again, I can I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know if it's going to offset 100% of what inflation is, but it is a way to offset inflation. And then finally, if you just look at, on the way that the leveraging of your money works in a permanent life insurance contract where I just pulled one up Rachel and this particular 48-year-old that has a premium of $50,000 if he were to if he were to die the next day, his family would get uh, seven hundred twenty thousand um, dollars. So that is leveraged up um, about. Uh, let's see, that's about well, no, about thirteen, fourteen times, fourteen, yeah, fourteen, a little over fourteen times. So that's going to offset inflation. Now, as we go further into the contract, the the numbers get better. So, um, I'm sorry. The, the The death benefit gets higher, but the but the return rate of return on the death benefit is not as great. But still, it's tax free money too. So, after ten years, he would have put have put in a a, a total premium of one million dollars, and the death benefit would be about one point five million dollars. So, can we say that that IRR is offsetting inflation? Once again, we don't have a crystal ball. However, it is tax-free money on the increase. So if you have something that you're putting money into that is taxable to try to offset inflation, you have to take in consideration the taxes you pay on that. And if we are going into a high inflationary environment where our debt from the U.S. government is also growing and we're going to have to pay that because higher interest rates mean we're going to have greater additions to the debt every year, then taxes are going to have to go up. So if you can have your money in a tax-free environment, that death benefit will not get eroded as the same as maybe something that is trying to keep up with inflation, but does it actually keep up with inflation once you take the taxes off of it? So all these things have to take it have to be taken in consideration uh, when you're trying to overcome inflation. And then the final thing, Rachel, if I could comment on this is, oh yes, you can have the best of both worlds. You could have the increase of the dividends through the increase of the bond rates, and you could borrow against it to put money into an investment that could offset inflation, or at least partially offset inflation. So I don't think. I don't think either are mutually exclusive. I think Phil brings in some really, really good points. And I tell people all the time, if you don't want to pay your mortgage off, don't pay your mortgage off. I mean, it does, it, it does um, violate one of the tenants that Nelson said, don't do business with banks because he's thinking they're part of the inflationary pr problem um, and they're part of the boom and bust cycle. Part of the reason that we're in this boom and bust cycle that the Austrians talk about all the time is we manipulated the interest rates so to so low below the normal free market for a, a, such a long time, 12 years, that now we're paying the piper. There's no such thing as being able to do things, manipulate things without consequences. Mm -hmm. So we had a boom cycle. Now we're going to go through a bust cycle. And, we, and that was caused by the manipulation of the money supply. 
Bruce, there's so much packed into this and so many places we could go. I love how that was a very wonderfully packed essay on the whole subject that covered all the bases. It really did. And I'll, I want to share a few additional things, but I think um, I actually did some math on a policy that I have in place on myself, just because I wanted to see what the leveraging looked like compared to inflation. And again, we could say, well, what is exactly inflation? You can look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics. You can look at, uh, I mean, you can look at the official numbers. You can say, well, are we looking at inflation on the rolling calendar year basis? Are we looking at the uh, average inflation over the year? Those are going to be different numbers. And again, that's just official inflation. Then you look at, well, what are you paying at the grocery store? You can break that down. There's a website as well that you can go to um, inflation inflation calculator. Yeah, and inflation is different where you live too. Oh yeah. Some some people that live in a more conservative, you know, rural area may not feel inflation as much as on the coast mm-hmm. where there's there's other pressures of people wanting to live there. So you have different type of inflationary pressures, just uh supply and demand inflationary pressures. So Oh yes. There there's different types of inflation. And it's interesting that I think don't they leave out food and energy costs with the the typical numbers for CPI, the consumer price index. Mm. But if you look at the consumer price index and you go to bls.gov, you can drill down to the specific categories. And I mean, just some of the highest ones were cereal and bakery of grocery. So that component, that subsection was 15.6% increase over last year from, I think it was from January to January. That's high. I mean, that's that's something that we're feeling in real reality terms. Um, fuel oil was 27.7% increase. Utilities, 26.7%. Airline fares, 25.6%. So if you're saying, well, yeah, the official inflation number might only be in the 6 to 7 to 8% range, what are you actually feeling in your experience? Well, it's high. And we all feel <clears throat> our dollars are not going as far today as they were last year and the year before. And so as we're looking at that whole thing, we're saying, well, how do we keep ahead of that? Another piece that I pulled up is when I looked at my specific policy, um, one of the policies that I have enforced, I was looking at in year one, the premium, if I paid the premium, it was a $30,000 premium. The death benefit in the first year was just over 500, just under 575,000. So that was a 19 times increase. So really similar to the one that you had looked at, Bruce. And again, these are influenced by age, gender, health habits, or your lifestyle. So you're going to have maybe different numbers, but still it's a considerably higher multiplier if you died in the first year. Uh, Great return on investment, terrible for your life. So let's not hope that for anyone, um, just that we can get ahead of the rate of return. I think maybe that's maybe the most compelling reason to say rate of return is not the most important thing. Otherwise, we just all buy life insurance policies and die right away. If if rate of return was the king of all um, end goals. So then I did look out um, in the 39th year of the policy, I'll be about age 75. Um, and at that point, the death benefit payout compared to premium paid in, and this was a, a super rough calculation. This was about three times what I'd paid in. So again, that considerably dropped. But because Bruce said this, and I want to really be specific, when you have a properly structured whole life insurance policy that is performing as efficiently as possible for you, one of the keys is to have your dividends purchase paid up insurance, which means that because of that feature, you have a continually rising death benefit. So what was interesting to note is that at in my policy, at that year 39 marker in the policy, no more premium is paid in. 
However, the death benefit continued to rise tremendously so that by age 121, hopefully I will live that long. That would be so amazing. Um, that's the end of the policy. And that's when it endows, which would pay out to you the full death benefit and cash value, which are going to equal at that point. It would pay out to you in your lifetime if you're still living and you live past all their projections. At that point, it was a 12 times multiplier, again, of what had been paid into the policy. So that's the leverage piece. But what I think is even more profound is two components. One, Bruce, you brought up the whole idea of being able to have your cash growing in your control inside your whole life insurance policy. And this is the and component of having an and asset. You're able to borrow against that and put those dollars to work over in another investment. Maybe that is a a duplex or a fourplex, and that is going to bring in rental income. Maybe at some point you sell that. Maybe you buy an apartment complex. Whatever you're going to do with the capital that's inside your whole life policy, if you put it to work in other investments, you have not only the growth inside the policy, you also have the compounding of the growth outside of the policy. So those two returns are going to be making that policy work even harder for you. And then I wanted to share another number as we're working on um, some specific data in a course that we're designing on infinite banking. So there will be a new course out soon. One of the numbers that we looked at is long-term compound growth. And what's really interesting is that most people don't ever experience the long-term compounding growth because we usually save up money and then we take it out of the account, wherever it is, savings, a CD, a money market, a mutual fund. We put the money in, somehow we take it out. We put the money in, we take it out. And so we interrupt the compounding and we're in a position where we don't experience that long-term uninterrupted compound growth. But inside of a life insurance policy, you do get to have uninterrupted compounding. So what we did is we took a look at if you say we're putting aside $100,000 every year and say that was growing at 3%. I'm oversimplifying. I'm not saying this is exactly what you're going to do in a, inside of a policy. Let's just say you were saving $100,000 a year, you're saving and your growth rate on that is 3%. What would happen at the end of 30 years would be that you have, oh, I don't know if I have the number in here. I don't have that number, but I do have, oh, you would have considerably more money at the end of that compounding curve than what you put in. And it's not just the amount that you saved. It is higher and higher and higher. That That's going to continue to ratchet up in a hockey stick curve that's much more powerful at the end of the curve. And if you were able to hold that money even longer, so say you were able to hold it not just 30 years, but you were able to compound that money over a hundred years, you're going to have a tremendously higher benefit at the end of that money. So the power of having money in your control is exponential and astronomical. And that's the real benefit of using infinite banking is that money is now in your control. You have access to be able to use it. You can guarantee it's not going to drop in dollar value. Now it might have, if you're comparing that against inflation, yes, it might have lost some purchasing power, but it's not going to drop in dollar value. So make sure I'm not miscommunicating here. You're going to know what the dollar value in that cash value account is. And you have the ability to know that you have that that guarantee. And that's powerful in your financial life. 
Yeah, so it really comes down to mindset, which I think IBC comes down to more mindset than anything. So what what can you can control? Do you control what the what the government does? No. You can control maybe a little bit by voting a certain way. Can you control what monetary policy is? Well, Nelson and the Nelson National Institute actually thinks that if enough people actually do honest banking and actually save first and then spend, Mm -hmm. that that will put pressure on the monetary policy because they will have to um, actually react to that people not actually uh, borrowing so much. And if you don't borrow a lot from a commercial bank, then you are not increasing the money supply. So you are actually helping in the area of inflation. Plus, you're helping yourself too, because you're taking the banking process into your own hand hands. You are recovering uh, the some of the financing that you normally do without losing the opportunity cost of of the compounding of your money. So this is why Nelson was so adamant about not doing business with banks because he felt like they were part of the problem in a variety of ways. And one was actually also causing, uh, having some cause of inflation, not total cause of inflation, but having some cause of inflation. So all in all, Phil, great question. I think that, um, in light of the whole situation, having control and having something that is the best place to store capital that is not at risk is very valuable. You could say, and I don't think you're saying this, Phil, you could say, why save at all? Because any savings is not going to keep up with inflation. So therefore, I should only borrow capital to invest. And if you're in that position, well, the investment has the potential of risk, which isn't bad. It just has that inherent potential of risk. And if you're borrowing, then you're paying interest back to the banking system. And that is what Nelson was saying. If you have the ability to recover that cost of capital and be earning interest, not just paying interest, you're in a much more powerful position. And so that's why infinite banking is not just saving you dollars it's in a position of putting you in control. Yeah. And, and uh, if you pick up Bob, Bob Murphy, Dr. Bob Murphy and Carlos Laro's book, how privatized banking really works. They actually explain all this. And it's not just the fact that a, a bank can actually have 10% reserves and then multiply that by 90%. Think about this. Then whomever's doing that, let's say they borrow money from a bank and they go use it to purchase a home, especially in a rebuild situation, but even purchasing a home because you're going to have other purchases then. But in a rebuild situation, what you're now doing is paying the contractors for building your home. Those contractors take that money and what do they do with it? That same money, original money they take and they put it in their bank. Now their bank only has to do 10% fractional reserve banking. So now we're multiplying it by even more. And then the contractor is going to use that to pay his employees. His employees, his or her employees, takes that money and puts it in their bank. And they get to then multiply it again. 
So it's just not a 10% fractional reserve banking for one. You then increase the money supply as it goes from one bank to the next bank to the next bank. And this was um, spelled out by Carlos and Bob in their book, How Privatized Banking Really Works. Bruce, there is a couple of thoughts here in the chat. I'm not sure if you're seeing them. So I'm going to share. Um, Joseph DeFazio is um, sharing a question. This is on LinkedIn. So you may not see this. Yeah, so I know the, Joe. He's, Joe knows a lot. So let's let's use this question. I knew, I'm, I know I've heard this name several times from you. So if they use the questionable human life value method to figure out the death benefit need, inflation is baked into the cash flows. No. So there's hey, kind of two that, ideas going on here. Say that again. I can um, also pop it in the chat for you so you can see it. If they use the questionable human life value method to figure out the death benefit need, I know where that's going here. Inflation mm -hmm. is baked into the cash flows. No. Okay, great. So what Joe is saying is there's a, there's a um, method that insurance agents use. It's called need-based analysis. And what they do is they say, um, okay, this is what your income is now. And we are going to presume that you're going to need inflationary income going forward. So you can pick an, you can pick an inflation number. Let's just pick 3% because that's historically what it's been. So they're saying like $20,000 of income this year at age 45, and we want to protect that income stream. Then at 65, we're gonna, it's not gonna be 20%, it's or $20,000. It might be $38,000. So we're we are going to build into our human life value, not just the what what you need in death benefit today to cover 20,000, but actually what you're going to need in the future to cover 38,000. So that's a needs-based analysis. We use that to some extent. But I always say I'd rather have analysis done on what you want to happen, not what you need to happen. And so what you want to happen, most people want, want greater uh, death benefit. Now, as Joe's pointed out, human life value is the most you can get. However, mm -hmm. however, the, the insurance companies will not allow you to get a future human life value. It's, it's going to be on whatever your either your network worth is now or what your income stream is now. Thus, you can apply for no, more insurance as your needs go up and so on and so forth. Hopefully, no health problems, so on and so forth. But uh, very good points uh, to be made. And hopefully, our listeners can uh, see the value of human life value as far as that goes. One piece of human life value, you said, if you want to increase your insurance in the future, hopefully your health hasn't gone down. One way that you can work around that is that you can get your full human life value today as well in term insurance, in addition to whatever you can qualify for, or whatever you your cash flow supports in whole life insurance, get the term insurance as well, which is make sure it's convertible to whole life insurance later, which is going to give you a lot more space to use today's health habits and underwriting medical information in the future. That is true. That I mean, that guarantees that it guarantees that you can convert it, but it doesn't guarantee that that's not going. That human life value will increase in the future, and you can't increase the amount of term 
that you're applying for. So that True. you're right, it protects your health in the future, but you're not going to be able to increase the term death benefit just because right. you you need it to, to increase. That's true. I just meant you can convert the term before it expires over to whole life, which is going to make it a longer length of time. Um, Correct. You are, you are right, though. Okay. So Joe had another thought that he wanted to share, and then I wanted to pull up the actual numbers that I lost track of as I was sharing my example. So Joseph DeFazio also says, ooh, and generationally, the death benefit could seed the next generation's policies. I love that you're talking about this because this is not conceptualized enough. Uh, I want to say something about that, but I'm going to finish your thought here. Um, So Joe goes on to say that restarts the leverage, yes, of the tax-free death benefit. Further, consider the endowment or death benefit are contractually certain. What's the economic value of certainty? Okay, so, so much gold packed into this. I think if we did think long-term, I mean, really long-term, not like five years long-term, not 30 years long-term, not end of our lifetime long-term, but if you thought generationally long-term, multiple generations. What about seven generations? Mm, That's a perfect number. (laughs) That's a perfect number. (laughs) We have a book coming out by that name in a few months here. So maybe less than a few months, it's going to be soon. So if you could purchase life insurance on yourself, have that leveraged up death benefit. So it's more than you paid in, pay out to your kids. They use that premium to purchase as much life insurance as they can get with that not premium, with that death benefit that turns into their premium, then their death benefit that pays out to your now grandchildren is going to be higher than what they paid in in premium. And if you just continue to use that capital to seed future generations policies, there's tremendous advantage because the starting capital is going to be way higher each time. And you have so much more and there's more people to be able to put policies on. So you have this growing pool of capital for a family that can be tremendously advantageous to setting them up for success. So, uh, well, think about this, Rachel, too. You're setting up for success early in life. How many people, if they had access to capital in their early 20s, could have compounded that a lot, a lot more quickly, their net worth? But what happens with most, with most people is they come out of college or they come out of high school, start a business or whatever, they don't have access to capital. So they have to slowly build access to capital. And you could say, well, they could borrow or the money. Or if they have well, college loans, then they're negative net worth. <laughs> right. Yeah. You could say, people might say, well, you could borrow the money, but uh, if you don't have some capital, you're not even going to have collateral to be able to borrow the money. Mm-hmm. So now if you have access to capital at a younger, because you got that death benefit passed, passed on to you, then you're going to be able to multiply that. And that should be able to um, outpace inflation at a greater Great, great points, Joe. Um, Nelson would be very proud of you. Um, and especially when you're thinking long-term by, by thinking a, a legacy play in the situation. And I just want to throw this idea out there. I think so many people think, well, if I give money to my kids or my grandkids, it's going to make them not have to work. The challenge with that entire line of thinking is that money doesn't cause any kind of flaws in character. What you need to do is develop the stewardship in the next generation so that they know how to use money well, because whether you give it to your children or you give it away, you're giving money to someone's kids. And if you're saying, well, my kids aren't going to be responsible enough to handle my money, I'm going to give it away to someone else. Well, you're just giving someone else's children your money and and trusting that, well, it's fine if they screw up their life. It's a poor belief about money that we have that 
more money is going to lead to more entitlement and more problems. It only does if you haven't built a solid foundation of character and stewardship and training. So yeah, let me I, let me give a shout out to one of my buddies, Tony Fine, and he used to always say, "Money doesn't cause character flaw; money exposes character flaws." Yes. So that's if <laughs> people that are worried about that, it's because they already feel like their children have some character flaws. Well, that's that's because they haven't been exposed to the right way of thinking. If they've been exposed to the right way of thinking, they're going to respect capital and they're going to multiply capital and serve others with that capital. Yes. And that is the way you should be thinking. And that is the way you should be uh, communicating to, with your children. Absolutely. Okay. So back to my numbers really quick, just in case you were holding on to the edge of your seat, waiting for a final <laughs> number, and I never shared it with you and I redirected. So if you did as a person, let, let's just say you were putting aside $100,000 every single year for the next 30 years, and that was at 3% growth rate. In 30 years, you would have saved of your money, capital putting in would be 300000 But the total balance on that account, if you hadn't used any of the money, would be 500000 That means that is $200,000 more than what you put in. What that means is because of the compound growth curve that's just going to continue to increase and improve over time, if you have uninterrupted compounding, you have more power at the end. I'm going to extend this out to 100 years just to show you what I mean. So if you then continue the same savings process, say that you had in your family multiple generations of having a savings plan and a savings habit over multiple generations, and you had $100,000 going into some savings tool every single year for 100 years at 3% growth rate, 3% interest. You would have totally, in total, put in $10 million of capital into this savings system. And at that rate, you would end up with a, an account balance of $62 million, which is a tremendously higher increase than before. So having uninterrupted compound interest is extremely valuable. Money in your control that doesn't stop the compounding will always in the long term provide tremendous advantage and that's a that's something that we can all value if we look long term it's just sometimes hard to see that far because we don't normally think in terms of 100 200 300 years of our lifetime um lastly Roy Lee says savings is a representation of labor by saving in a policy you stop your labor from backing the banking system and you put it to work for you through dividends. Yeah, Roy, Roy Lee obviously in a, thinks like an Austrian economist, understanding that that your money is just a represent, representation of labor. So if you have questions, you can drop them into the chat. We won't see them after the end of the show, but you can also email us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com if you have questions that you'd like us to address on a future show or to you directly. If you are in a position of saying, this really piqued my interest and it helped me to overcome something that was a mental block or a hurdle that I had in the way of thinking about infinite banking. And you would like to move forward personally, you can do that by going over to themoneyadvantage.com and booking a call with one of our advisors to really start that process of looking at your financial life and assessing what the best strategy is for you moving forward to optimize your financial life. 
Before we close, thank you for being with us today. Go ahead and hit like on wherever you're watching. Go ahead and share this episode. And if you would like more content like this, we would just encourage you to share your thoughts and questions with us in the comments or by email. Bruce, anything you want to say before we close? No, I think the, thanks everybody for the questions. And if you're, uh, I'm looking at them on YouTube. Uh, if you want to subscribe and keep up with the content, we'd really appreciate it. Absolutely. And that helps more people like you who are looking for this information to be able to find us as well. So thank you. Go have an amazing day. And in closing, please remember success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd and build a life and business you love. We'll see you next time. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.